Hello and welcome back to the Just Bloody Post-It podcast, season three. This is the show for people who are promoting their work by themselves on the internet, on Instagram, on emails, on YouTube, on TikTok, on wherever. It all comes down to the same thing, putting yourself out there, being valuable and heartfelt in your messaging and a little bolder than you thought possible. I'm your host, Helen Perry, and promise to bring you more conversations with very different people who are all still learning this business of small business marketing, but happy to share their best lessons so far. Lucky us. Today, the New York Times and Sunday Times best-selling author, Claire McIntosh, on her adventures on TikTok. So I felt that I needed to A, understand it, B, be taggable if people uh, want to find me and C, be ready to incorporate it into my growth strategy. And so I joined TikTok, I learned it fast and I worked it fast and hard for a few weeks so that I could build up a few thousand followers in Claire, I think I've met my match in terms of marketing geekery. I mean, yeah, she's written an award-winning debut novel, I Let You Go, and gone on to be published in 40 countries and sold more than 2 million books. But she also loves online community building and she's brilliant at it through her social accounts and her book club. She's cultivated a loyal audience of readers for her novels. We'll find out how what works best for her and why we ignore Facebook at our peril, but might also want to consider TikTok. Stay curious. I began by asking Claire how her old job as a police officer helped her to become a best-selling author. This will be uh, something that perhaps resonates with you and with your listeners. The common thread in everything I've done is storytelling. And although that seems odd on the face of it to think of a police officer as being a storyteller, police officers are, are finding the story. They're working out what's happened. They're listening to unreliable narrators and people who are telling a story in a very chaotic way and they are ordering them and making sense of them and presenting those stories in a way that is compelling for an audience, for a judge and jury or a magistrate. And that's just what I do now, but I work with fiction instead of truth. For me, it didn't feel like a huge shift, um, but ultimately I left, and again, I suspect this will resonate, I left to regain some work-life balance that I really didn't have. I, I wasn't really seeing my children. I wasn't being the sort of mother I wanted to be at that particular time. And so I took a career break and thought, I'll give myself a couple of years, see if I can make a living from writing. You, you wrote fiction all the time for, for personal pleasure, for with the view to getting published? I always wrote, but I wrote sort of snatches of things. Um, and then when I discovered blogs, which was in about 2006, um, there weren't very many bloggers then. You know, now obviously everyone and their nan has a blog, but then it, blogging was much, much smaller and um, parent bloggers were quite few and far between. And I gained a really big following, partly because there weren't very many of us and partly because I have a bit of an instinct for social media and for what works and um, 
and building that engagement community has always been really important important to me again you know that's something I've sort of carried through from working in the community as a police officer so I gained a big following and um, that taught me a lot and it taught me what resonated with people and what didn't and um, I I started to shift from writing for myself to writing for an audience um, and that mind shift was really important um, so then I wrote my first novel and uh, things have been rather amazing ever since. Yeah I mean it was uh, a more than moderate success can you tell us about the book? Well, the first thing I should say, actually, is that I Let You Go, which is my debut novel, is not the first novel that I wrote. So I have got a um, a bottom drawer novel, um, which I'll, I'll mention really briefly because I think it's a useful story. Um, so I wrote a, um, a romantic comedy first and was fortunate enough to find an agent with this romantic comedy who then found some interest from a publisher. And this agent said... I don't think you should proceed with this. I don't think you should um, meet the publisher. I don't think this is the right novel for you to launch a writing career with because for as long as you live, this will always be your debut novel. This this is a career-defining book. Do you want this to be the, the book that defines you? And it wasn't because I knew I could write something better and bigger and more important. Um because, you know, first novels that you've not worked on for very long are often not brilliant, not your best work. So I took that advice and I left it in the bottom drawer. And then I wrote, I let you go. And I honestly think that if I hadn't listened to that very wise piece of advice, that I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be talking to you. I wouldn't have had the career that I've had and continue to have. So I wrote, I let you go. And um, it, it sold not for very much money, not enough to live on, very small deal. But then people loved it. It came out in ebook and word of mouth started uh, to create this snowball effect. And then it was picked for the Rich and Judy Book Club um, and things just exploded. Does that still make a massive impact for a writer being, being, being picked by Rich and Judy? It still is a big deal. It's a huge deal. It's so commercially, I, I think maybe it's less of, um, of a big deal now than it was, say, 10 years ago. Um, and that's simply because, um, you know, people's, um, credibility within, within a particular niche, uh, varies depending on, you know, their, it's their stock, isn't it? Um, and so Rich and Judy were perhaps more popular 10 years ago than, than they are now. Um, but it's still huge because what it means is your book is in every single WH Smith because that's their commercial partner. So all the train stations, airports, um, you know, WH Smiths in high streets up and down the country and, um, it's it's not a guarantee you're going to get a bestseller, but it's giving you the best possible chance because suddenly you've got this huge wave of marketing attached to it. So, but more more importantly than that, and this hasn't changed over the years, is the emotional lift, the confidence that it gives you when someone that you've grown up watching on TV chooses your book above anyone else's to recommend to the nation. And that is a huge thing. Is it fair to say that your writing career since then has exceeded your expectations for what might be possible? Or have you always been 
very ambitious. Sky's the limit. Uh, well, tr- it's true. You're right on both those counts. So um, I am incredibly ambitious, um, although I tend to use the word driven um, because actually it I- I'm driven in everything that I do. I, you know, I want to do the best that I possibly can. And um, I find with the word ambitious that there are, rightly or wrongly, connotations that that means we want to be better than other people. And actually, that's not really what what motivates me. Um, but but yes, very, very driven, always have been in every job, in every area of, of my life. But in relation to publishing, because there's so much that is outside of your control, and I'm a, a big believer in um, in working on spheres of influence. So you have the core things that you can directly influence, and they have a knock-on effect on the outer layers but actually you can't create a bestseller on your own. So my drive, my ambition was really confined to finding the best team, doing the best I could, creating the best platform that that I can, giving it the best possible chance. And if I had a, a strategy, it was to for each book to sell more than the one before, to create a, a strong, solid foundation to build what I expected, what I hoped would be a a slow but steady long career in publishing. Going back to when your first novel was published, was the fact that you had a good social following, a good blog readership, was that influential in you being able to secure a book deal or were the two things not really connected? I think it very much helped because I was writing about parenting um and i um i was i was blogging about parenting so i had a, a sort of a relevant platform but actually by the time i came to write i let you go i i don't think it made a difference i think you know that was that was the book it's made a big difference since in terms of subsequent deals in terms of foreign um publishers coming on board and other opportunities and and now my my um author platform is a hugely important part of my business. But no, I, I think it, it shouldn't be seen as um, a, a kind of a prerequisite, um, although that's slightly different for non-fiction authors. So any sort of entrepreneurs who are thinking that actually they'd like to maybe create some passive income, maybe create a, a book that really showcases their expertise – that's very different because then people are, publishers are looking for that credibility. They're looking for that stock value that comes with having an audience that comes with having testimonials and, you know, creating some, um, some real evidence that you know what you're talking about. You do have a fantastic social network, uh, community. Let's take it apart. Can you tell me where your audience lives at the moment in 2022 online? I can. I divide my time between Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, um, and TikTok. Now, I use them all in very different ways and always have done. And I'm quite evangelical about the fact that we should be using them in different ways. And I see this um, in the same way that I think about my friendship group. So occasionally I will 
do the same thing with all my friendship group. And, and that might be because we um, all go to a wedding or I have a massive Christmas party um, that they're all invited to. And then my friends are, are mixing and mingling. But actually, mostly I socialise with those groups of friends individually and I do different things. I go to the theatre with a certain group of friends and I go to the pub with another and I go for walks with the dogs with another... And that's how I see social media. And if you see it like that, then it's really obvious that you're going to communicate with them in a slightly different way, quite possibly the same message, but in a different form of delivery. So that's where they live. And over the years, it's changed in terms of the the balance. So Twitter was probably my primary platform, I would say seven, eight years ago. That's where I built community. That's where I built industry knowledge. And it's where a lot of writers live and feel comfortable on social, isn't it, on Twitter? And that's still the the case. Yeah, I think it probably is. And I think that might have a, you know, something to do with the fact that it's obviously just word-based and um, there's a certain amount of um, skill, I think, in saying what you want to say in a small number of characters and before Twitter increased its number of characters, that was really quite a challenge. Um, creating threads um, is is something that's really popular with authors in particular who will craft a narrative that really mirrors the three-act structure of their novels, but they're telling a story perhaps about the research that went into their books or a, a you know, a character, um, pen picture. So Twitter is very popular with, with authors. Um, what I found though over the years is that it has very much become for me my industry place. So that is where I will share news and updates and I do, um, engage with readers and I'll respond to them, but I'm not looking for readers there. That's really where I'm connecting with other authors, with um, aspiring authors, with agents, editors. I'm seeing what's coming out. It, you know, it's keeping me abreast of the market. Facebook, which was relatively small for me um, 10 years ago, has become my most important platform. So interesting because so many people have, have written it off as being a uncool place to hang out. How do you, uh, how do you communicate with your people on Facebook? So groups are where it's at for me. Um, and I, you know, I think that's very common at the moment. Um, I don't think it's uncool. I think there is, um, actually to say it's un- uncool and to write it off is to write off a huge number of people, particularly older people who actually are very comfortable on Facebook. And I'm not just talking women in their 40s and 50s. I'm talking people in their 60s, their 70s, their 80s. Um, but also more and more younger people are having to use Facebook because businesses are using Facebook. A lot of places aren't, they, they don't have websites. They point people towards Facebook. Um, a lot of people my age, so in their forties are having to stay on Facebook, even if they don't want to, because their teenagers, uh, clubs are all organized on Facebook. You know, my, my kids school communicates by Facebook, much to my uh, annoyance. Um, so there are lots of reasons why people are on are on Facebook. But the groups, you can't really, I mean, I use the groups for work. And if you want to bring a, a group of people together in a space where they can all contribute 
together, I haven't found a better place to do that than a Facebook group. Is that how you use it for your book club and things? Absolutely. So I had a Facebook page that was just running on its own and it's absolutely fine and I continue to to use it a lot. But then I set up a Facebook group to run my book club and that works in tandem with my mailing list. And if I could only, if I had to walk away with only one strand of my business strategy, it would be my mailing list. You're preaching to the converted. I really want to talk, I really want to talk to you about your book club, which is kind of, I had it down for later in the conversation, but let's just go there right now. So I was on your website this morning doing my pre-interview research and I was like, oh, Claire runs a book club. And that's how she gets people to opt into her email mailing list. It's a fantastic lead magnet and also community builder. You're allowing people to join you uh, and be part of something which is such a lovely next step and something that might not seem obvious for a lot of creators that you could do that that you could create a club and invite people to be part of it when did you start that well so my mailing list I've run from the outset you know for several years it had about four people and my mum on it um I converted my mailing list to a book club about four years ago because more and more authors were setting up newsletters. Um, a lot of them followed a similar format to, to the one that my, um, my newsletter had. And I just felt I wasn't offering anything different. And I am very, very brutal with my own signups in my mailing list. I will unsubscribe at the drop of a hat if something doesn't hold my interest. I subscribe to very, very few newsletters and I, I have a very, very kind of uh, high bar when it comes to uh, quality. You know, I, I want something useful, entertaining, interesting. Um, and I just didn't feel I was offering that. Um, so I switched the mindset around um, because what you have to remember for an author is that someone like me who's traditionally published, I publish one book a year and I'll have some events in between, but you can't, I don't think, you can sustain uh, a year-round newsletter on one product launch a year. Um, so I switched around, I turned it into a book club, I kept everyone that I had, but I then started marketing specifically to people who wanted to read along with me. And so what we do is we is I, I choose a book every month, it's entirely optional, um, but if you want to read along, I'll, uh, I work with independent bookshops, um, who will offer a small discount, but it's very much a kind of a feel good thing. If you buy this book from an independent trader, you're doing a great thing. Um, and then we talk about it. So everyone has a month to read and then, um, uh, we have set questions and discussions towards the end of that period. Um, and of course, what it gives me is, um, the opportunity to really get to know what readers want. So I'm really analysing my market in an enjoyable, natural, fun way. It also, from a commercial point of view, is the perfect platform to then use my own book. So when my latest book, um, Hostage, which is a thriller, came out, I had it as my book club pick. And I'm not embarrassed to do that because for 11 months of the year, I'm showcasing other people's books. And so actually it's okay to say, right, do you know what, guys? I've got a book out now, so let's talk about this. And it's been amazing to see the community grow. It seems to me that it, that would have been a revelation in terms of signups, has it been? Yeah, absolutely. Grow, yeah. It grows yeah. pretty fast. Um, I have two volunteer um, admins who 
um, keep the group in order because it's a big, it's a big job now. You know, there are, um, somewhere close to 9,000 members in the Facebook group, about four, 14 or 15,000, about 15,000 on the list. So I, every 12 months I have, um, a big cull and I take out anyone who hasn't engaged, hasn't opened an email in say six, eight months. Um, and they go, so I keep the list strong and, um, you know, relatively small so that it, it, it's working for me and I'm not paying for people that aren't reading it. Um, and the other thing that I do that I've only just started, I started it six months ago and it is the best piece of software that I have found. So I'm going to share it with you now is a plugin called Group Boss and it syncs your Facebook group questions. So the questions that you might ask someone when they ask to join the group with your mailing list. Fantastic. I will look it up and I will link to it or give some details in the show notes. Frankly, I could talk to you about this all day, but I'm going to move us on to TikTok because that's where I discovered you on social media. And I don't spend a great deal of time on TikTok, but I'm curious about it. I'm interested in it and I have an open mind. Are you one for always jumping onto new platforms or did you think quite carefully about TikTok before you started to invest your time in creating content for it? Yes, I do think carefully. You know, there are a lot of platforms one could be on. And I think um, you have to decide whether you want to ignore it completely, whether you want to have a presence so that people can find you, tag you, or whether you actually want to leap into it. And then another level to that is whether you want to work on growing it. So I am not at the moment working on actively growing my TikTok. Um, and that is a decision that I've made in the past. I made it about Instagram quite a many, many years ago. I kept Instagram just for me. Is that just, is that just a time investment thing? You've got, you can't do it all. Yeah. So you are prior, you prioritize certain ones. Yeah. And yeah. then a few years ago, I, I sort of incorporated Instagram into my growth strategy. So that then became, you know, uh, um, on the sort of on a par with Facebook and Twitter. So that's kind of where I am with with TikTok at the moment. So I decided that I would join TikTok um, initially to understand it, um, but also because I can see how it might become quite important for my industry. So it's already, it's so it is very important for, for the book world already. So BookTok, which is you know, a subsection of TikTok, um, and there'll be subsections for everything. There's fitness talk and there's sewing talk and all sorts of things. Book talk's already very, very influential, but it's predominantly influential in the young adult and romance genres. It's not at the moment hugely influential in the crime genre, but if something is working very, very well in one genre, there is strong potential that at some point that's going to filter across to other genres. And so I felt that I needed to A, understand it, B, be taggable if people uh, want to find me and C, be ready to incorporate it into my growth strategy. And so I joined TikTok, I learned it fast and I worked it fast and hard for a few weeks so that I could build up um, a few thousand followers and now I've sort of scaled back a bit. So rather than it being sort of part of my daily to-do list, 
it's something that I'll do if I've got some time because it it can coast now. It, it can coast for a bit. Um, and if I feel that I've got capacity to really focus on it and, and that it would, would bring me the right level of, of ROI, then I would do that. For somebody who is bewildered by TikTok, how can you describe the content that works there? So TikTok is obviously video based in the way that Instagram is predominantly um, static image based, although reels uh, have changed that a lot recently. Twitter is word based. Um, so TikTok, it's all about moving video and it's all about short form video. So it's super quick how to tutorials or super quick words of wisdom from someone or compilation photos that, that show something. If you imagine that the audience have very low attention spans. Now they, they don't all, but it's helpful when you're designing something, when you're creating something for TikTok to just pretend that the person you're addressing has a, a tiny, tiny attention span. Then that's quite helpful to create the right kind of content that works. Um, and the right sort of content has lots of movement. So rather than, um, so if, for example, I was going to do a, a 30 second how to on creating um, three-dimensional characters. I could just do that talking directly to screen, but that's going to be quite a static video. So if I do it in 10-second bursts, I do three tips and I have a different camera angle with each or I'm walking as I as, as I give the tips, that creates movement. Um, TikTok's algorithm likes movement. TikTok's audience likes movement and it's more likely to be a successful video. Perfectly put. And you've embraced the the silly side, definitely. Have you? You've obviously got a silly side, and you've kind of lent into that with your, some of your TikTok videos. They they take the piss out of the book business, out of yourself writing. I mean, that is it's certainly it's a fun place. And I think that's why I've loved it because I don't feel I can use that side of me. Um, on any other platform, really. It doesn't lend itself. Certainly, Twitter, it would feel very, very odd if I suddenly made a joke. Um, it, it, because it just doesn't fit with how I use Twitter at, at the moment. It fits more with my personal Facebook, which nobody sees, um, outside of my, my friends and family. Um, but because of the way TikTok's set up and because of the way it encourages you to lip sync to, uh, um, audio from films or from songs and, and apply those, uh, words to a context in your own niche, it lends itself to humour. And that's something that I've missed, actually. You know, I, I said earlier that I wrote a romantic comedy and I went to that genre because I love humour and I love, you know, entertaining. Um, and I write crime. So actually, although I entertain, it's it's not generally laugh out loud funny. So it's nice to do something that feels a bit lighter. Um, and it also enables readers to see behind the scenes. It enables them to, to see the real me, and I'm sort of waggling my hands in air quotes because the real us is authentic, but it's still a, a, a layer of authenticity that we choose to let people see. Um, so it's not, you know, I don't want people listening to this to think, well, I don't want people to see the real me. They don't have to see all of you. 
you decide definitely you decide what's uh you know we can give people three or four percent and still be giving them quite a lot of what's really true about ourselves I have found um this is a lot of content Claire do you think that because of the kind of work you do you have um a lot of time to invest in creating content for all these different platforms or do you make it quick and snappy and actually it doesn't take up a great deal of time for you to feed Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, book club, emails? How do you fit it all in? It's, um, look, it's, it's really time consuming and I don't have any more time than anyone else does. Uh, you know, we've all got 24 hours in the day. I work too many of them. Um, and although I said earlier that I'd left the police to regain a work-life balance, I have to say in the last couple of years, I have lost it again. So that's very much my focus for this year is, is to get some balance back. Um, so I do a couple of things. Um, I plan and I schedule and I can't stress enough how time-saving it is to batch content and to schedule it. Um, I confine engagement to particular times of the day when it's not interrupting work. So for me, that tends to be on my phone with my morning cup of tea. Same again, you know, maybe after lunch, that type of thing. It's, it's very much tied to when I'm sitting down having a cup of tea, I'll do some engagement. I've made peace with the fact that I can't reply to everybody. And that's a really hard thing. And I, I still struggle with it, but I just can't. It, it would not be possible. And so I just have to go through and read what I can and, you know, comment where I can and like as much as I can. No, I think that's a really important thing, Claire, because certainly when I started out learning about social media marketing, there was such a lot of emphasis in training and from experts and so-called experts that, you know, you must engage, 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 engage. And it's becomes a time hoover like no other, because as with all digital engagement, the more you engage, the more you get back and then you could engage more and then they'll engage back. And you you could spend your entire time simply engaging on your social accounts and you have to draw a line so that you can do your other work. It's just, you just have to. With comments on a post, it's different because you can reply to a couple and then people see that you are actually there and you're responding, but they accept you're not, you don't happen to have replied to them. But of course, in inboxes, they don't see any of that. All they see is that you've ignored their message. And, and I find that really, really tough. Um, but Instagram in particular, I find irritating because it doesn't differentiate between someone who's reacted and someone who's commented. Um, and so it's difficult to filter out where you might actually want to, to reply. DMs are very anxiety inducing. I don't know what it is about that particular type of notification that can really make you feel quite a sense of panic when all that, that that number starts clocking up and you can't get to the bottom of them and they get very muddled up as well. So you lose people that you haven't replied. I always, I kind of make a regular, you know, comment on my Instagram now that, you know, if you really want to get hold of me, don't DM me because that is not a good direct way to to reach me. 
Absolutely. I often yeah. move conversations. Someone that perhaps has asked for a charity donation or a, you know, something quite personal, something important. I'll often say, here's my email address. Yeah. Can we move it? Because that's Same. my filing system. Um, yeah, what I, something I've done recently is adopt a hybrid approach to taking on freelance help. Um, and I, I wanted to talk about this because I think we often assume it's sort of all or nothing. And, and I have outsourced social media in the past and have not been happy with it. And I've not been happy with it because I'm quite good at social media. And so actually I've got particular standards. I know what my strategy is and it's quite a lot of work to make sure someone else is doing that in the way that I... Easier to do it yourself feels easiest it can do yeah I want to have that input and if I'm having that input to be honest it genuinely is quicker for me to do it but what I've done recently is I have um, outsourced half of it and I think this works quite well it's early days for me um, but what I've done is I've I um, I've identified the main pillars of content that I want so they're things like uh, a regular call to action for the book club um, a regular call to action for one of my backlist books so books that have been out for some time but I still want to remind people about so I've outsourced those regular content pillars on particular days and said to my freelance team, I don't need to see that. I trust you. I know you know what I want you to do. I don't need to sign it off. I don't need to see the images. I just want this done on those days every month. And that's it. That's off my shoulder. That's my monkey gone onto someone else's back. Um, But it means that I've kept the flexibility on all the other days of the week that I can post in an ad hoc way but I can schedule the posts that I want to schedule. So I still keep a little bit of strategic control. If I'm really, really busy and I just need to drop some balls, I can do that because there's still regular content going out. And I've been careful to outsource sort of community posts as well as um, uh, uh, salesy posts. So I know that I can kind of go to social media light that's being taken care of but most of the time I'll, I'll be there to sort of add that, that, that me value as well. And I think this is going to work for me and it could potentially work for people who feel like they're close to being able to outsource, but actually can't really outsource everything or don't want to. Yeah. Bloody genius. It's definitely got my brain ticking over. Thank you for sharing that. Finally, Claire, as a professional storyteller, what is your advice to somebody sharing their story on social media? How do you do it well? You think about who you're talking to. And regardless of whether this is a story about your personal journey or a fictional story or a story about the evolution of a product that you're bringing to market, you ask yourself, who is listening or reading to this message and what do they want out of it? Um, and if you can, if you can visualize that person and you can understand what they're getting from it, then you will write or create the best possible content that tells that story. But if you start from you, you're going to miss the mark on that. Um, so always, always start with the audience. Thank you, Claire. It was such a pleasure to chat. This is a real passion of mine. So it's really great. Thank you. 
you know when someone over delivers that's what I'd call that conversation I actually had no idea that Claire was so knowledgeable about this stuff when I invited her onto the show so thoughtful and professional about her marketing it's a bit of a kick up the bum isn't it social media managers and people who are thinking is there any way that I can lighten the load of all this content creation? I think that her idea for handing over part of what you post while keeping control of more personal and creative content is really helpful. Could that work for you? could for me maybe I'm thinking in the future anyway friend if you would like to support the just bloody post it podcast tell your friends share it on social subscribe whatever you listen and leave a review on apple podcasts it all helps to spread the word thank you for coming I'll see you next time bye